Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung and welcome to Prophecy Today. I need 90 minutes because I have a jam-packed 90 minutes to give you. We are going to be covering current events around this world that you're not going to believe. How about D-Day ceremonies there in France at Normandy? Wow, we have had one of our broadcast partners go down there into southern France. We're talking about Ken Timmerman. We'll get to Ken in a moment. David Wilder, he's in Hebron, the second most sacred city in all of Judaism. He's going to tell us the story that happened back in 1967 when one rabbi walked into Hebron and all the Arabs there surrendered to him. Wow, one rabbi, pretty strong there in this city of Hebron. And then Winky Madad is going to talk about Shavuot, which is the Hebrew name for Pentecost. We're going to be talking about the Feast of Pentecost. It's the fourth of the spring feasts, the last of the spring feasts for the Jewish people. But it has a connection to Christians because that's the day, Acts chapter 2, when Jews were in Jerusalem on that pilgrim feast day, on Pentecost, Peter preached, and over 3,000 Jews came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. I told you that's a jam-packed program already, but wait, we've got more, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. I want to remind you that we're here in temporary studios in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Had a great meeting this morning with the Spanish people. They have a church here in Milwaukee. We were able to speak to them. They were so eager to hear the prophetic word of God. Well, that was this morning, this afternoon after the broadcast. We head over to Toma, Wisconsin, to the Toma Baptist Church. Ron Tobin is the pastor there. He's recuperating from a heart attack. I'm going to take all the services on Sunday, and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday we have services. More about that in a moment. If you're in that Toma, Wisconsin area, come study the prophetic word of God with us. Ken, I understand just before we went on the air, you walked in the door of your home there in southern France, having returned from Normandy. How how far is that trip? Well, it's about 700, 750 miles from where we live. Uh, it's a long drive. We did it over two days. But I tell you, this was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings in Normandy. Uh, and for me, it was something of a return. My first exposure to France was 45 years ago on D-Day when I landed in Le Havre and uh, went through Normandy uh, as people were celebrating the 30th anniversary of those landings. So it was really extraordinary to come back and to see hundreds of World War II vehicles on the roads. You had reenactors from all across Europe and from the United States. And I tell you, these guys were just having a a load of fun driving on the tiny little roads (laughs) up above the Normandy beaches where their fathers or grandfathers in some cases had landed 75 years ago. I also spoke with veterans who had landed at Omaha Beach or at Utah Beach. There were scores of them there. I can remember when the World War II memorial opened in Washington, there were hundreds. Now there are just scores left. Uh, They're in their late 90s, some of them. And they told their stories. President Trump uh, told some of their stories to a worldwide audience when he gave his speech with French President Macron uh, on D-Day to, there were about 4,000 people live 
listening to that giant screen set up in the American cemetery. You know, the American cemetery is over 9,000 U.S. soldiers are buried there who died during the Normandy landings. We visited one bridge, Jimmy, that the 82nd Airborne took, had to hold so men could come off of Utah Beach. They lost 256 men just to take a single tiny little bridge. This was not a big, this is not a big bridge. This is a bridge over a creek in the middle of a marsh, just wide enough for a Sherman tank, and as long as two Sherman tanks. But they lost 256 men to hold it, because if they didn't hold it, the Germans could have come across and slaughtered tens of thousands of Americans. It was an extremely moving experience, uh, a, a moving ceremony. And French people that I met there in the grave remarked, as soon as they looked at I speak fluent French, as soon as they understood that I was uh, American, they said, and all these men died to save us and to mm. give us our freedom. And I must say, as an American, I found I really appreciated to hear that. And I wasn't surprised, because I heard that also 45 years ago when I was in Normandy. You know, it almost brought tears to my eyes then, Ken. That's a uh a very moving account of your trip down to the D-Day ceremonies. That was a different generation that really we have living today, wasn't it? It really was. And uh, Donald Trump called them not just the greatest generation, but he said in his typical way, the greatest generation of all time. And he told their stories. He told stories of men who landed, who gave their lives to help others to take out machine gun nests, German machine gun nests that were up above the beaches and and mowing down young men uh, on Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach was a slaughterhouse. That's where most of the 9,000 died. It was horrible. Uh, You see some of that in Saving Private Ryan and, and on The Longest Day, an earlier film that was made. But the men... Who, who landed, look, I met one Navy veteran who landed at Omaha Beach. He said, I knew I was going to die. Mm. The man, he's now 97 years old. He said, I knew I was going to die. But I said to myself, I've got to do my very best and kill as many Germans as I can. Wow. <laughs> and, of course, wow. he survived D-Day, and he survived an awful lot else as well and, and uh, lived for 30 years uh, in my new hometown in Jacksonville, Florida. Wow, isn't that something? A different generation. And I hope and pray that our young people can learn from what they've been hearing these last couple of days and weeks. Well, in the meantime, Ken, over there in China, Beijing, I believe it was, uh, the Chinese president and the Russian president getting together, ignoring what was going on at D-Day, and they were trying to do their own thing, weren't they? Well, that's right. And I'm glad that you point out that they were ignoring what was happening in D-Day because the French media made a big deal of a statement by President Putin who said, don't exaggerate what happened in D-Day. Don't forget what the Russians did to help liberate Europe from Nazi tyranny, which is true. But, you know, to downplay what happened on D-Day is really in very, very poor taste. So President Xi was visiting Moscow to meet with President Putin, and he called him my best friend. He said, we've met for 30 times in recent years, and, uh, you know, they're expanding trade between Russia and China. And here's the kicker, is that the Russians have agreed to allow Huawei, the Chinese telecom manufacturer that has now been banned from the United States because they are a security risk. And I can tell you, Jimmy, they really are a security risk. Every chip in a Huawei phone phones home to Mother China 
when <laughs> whenever something that interests Mother China is going on, the U.S. government is very, very well aware of this, which is why they banned them. So the Russians said, it's okay. You can come to Russia and set up our 5G telecom network. So they are expanding trade. They're expanding their strategic relationship. Uh, and President Xi even brought two pandas for the Moscow Zoo. Hmm. Isn't that ridiculous? At some time in history when the D-Day ceremonies were going on. Well, talk to me. Let's go to the Middle East. Iran says they're six months away from having a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, and that's confirmed by the IAEA, former general director, the International Atomic Energy Agency, saying to Israel, you'd better wake up in the rest of the Middle East, giving them warnings as well. Right, and Oli Hanonen, who was the head of the security team, he was the chief inspector who went to Iran for many years. He's been retired for a couple of years. He's in the Washington, Washington, D.C. think tank now. But he's a very credible individual. He knows Iran from the inside. He knows the Iranian nuclear facilities from the inside. And he knows their program from the inside. And it is his expert opinion that the Iranians can have a nuclear arsenal, nuclear weapons arsenal within six to eight months. That's a very significant statement. He's also been very critical of his former agency, the IAEA, in their handling of Iran's nuclear program. They've not insisted on snap inspections. They have allowed the Iranians to self-inspect don't get that and tell the IAEA that nothing bad is going on there. So he says, look, they are six to eight months away from not just a bomb, but from a nuclear weapons arsenal. And, of course, mm. the Iranians say, well, you know, we would never want to do that because it's against Islam. That is what they say for us here in the West. I can guarantee you, inside the Iranian regime and the Revolutionary Guard and the Supreme Leader's office, they all know that that statement is a joke. They are today, as we speak, a virtual nuclear weapon state that can become an actual nuclear weapon state in a matter of months. And Syria is saying that Iran is not leaving despite what the United States and Israel tried to do, putting the pressure on. Right. And again, an important statement from the government of Syria, Iran is not leaving because the rumors have been out there that the Russians would put some pressure on Iran. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. The Syrians are very happy about that. They're happy to have Iran in Syria on Israel's border with the land bridge open between Iran, Iraq, and Syria to bring weapons and men right up to Israel's border. Ken Timmerman giving us an on-the-ground account of the D-Day ceremonies there at Normandy and then filling in all the other reports for geopolitical activities as well. Ken, thank you so very much. And, Jimmy, i got to tell you just one more thing. is that I, I spent a lot of time with the U.S. Rangers. There were 150 U.S. Rangers who came for the 75th commemoration, and they once again escalated the cliffs at the Pointe du Oc. Amazing to watch them do it. They had modern technology. As some of those guys got to the top, they said, impressive, we are humbled. We weren't even shot at. We weren't carrying 70-pound packs. The rangers of today were humbled to imagine what those men had done 75 years ago at Pointe du Hoc to take out the German positions that were killing Americans down on the beaches. Hey, thanks for interrupting me, Kim. That was very, very, very special. And again, thank you for the report today. We'll talk again next week. You bet. God bless you. Thank you. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we have a Middle East news update. David Dolan is standing by. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. As I said, I'm here in temporary studios in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now after the broadcast is over, we're going to head over to Toma, Wisconsin. We're going to be at the Toma Baptist Church there with Ron Toman. We're going to be there a Sunday through Wednesday prophecy conference. Well, it's uh, I was here, I say, in Milwaukee. That's why we have temporary studios here. And earlier this morning, we spoke at the Spanish church here in Milwaukee. Had a great time. These people are so eager and hungry to study the Word of God. I taught the entire book of Revelation in about 45 minutes. It was a great time giving them the overview of this very key prophetic book. Pray for the ministry of the Spanish church here in Milwaukee. Well, let's get to our broadcast partner, as promised, David Dolan. He's the man who covers the Middle East for us. And David, let me get right into it. The former director general of the IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency, making the statement this week that Iran is about six months away from having a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. He says Israel had better start worrying. The rest of the Middle East had better pay attention as well. What do we know? Well, Jimmy, I've been hearing from my Israeli sources that that was one of the pillars for the past uh, month's uh, U.S. military buildup in the Middle East. 
Uh, by the way, the Iranians claim that their superior weaponry kept the USS aircraft carrier group that was heading in there from actually going into the Persian Gulf. They're just outside of it, so they're close by. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But uh, this intelligence does show that they are indeed working once again since the end of the U.S. participation in the nuclear treaty to build nuclear weapons. Well, of course, the confrontation with Iran, which seems absolutely inevitable, as we've been saying, and in fact, we had the reports on Friday, the U.S. commander over the Middle East, Frank McKenzie, General Frank McKenzie, said the threat is very real. He said, we think they've just decided to, quote, step back and recalculate, but that doesn't mean that they don't have plans to attack U.S. troops. And he didn't go into what they might do, but he said, I don't believe the threat has diminished. So they still see something very, very dark in the horizon. And, of course, an attack now before they have a nuclear capability would be one thing. Afterwards, it would be far more grave. But, Jimmy, as I've warned all along, the official Iranian nuclear program is one thing. The underground nuclear program is another, and that's been going on, and Israel's done a lot to reveal that over the years, Netanyahu in particular, the prime minister, and then they may have acquired already some nuclear weapons. Uh, Hezbollah may have them. There's been hints of that and intelligence about that. Uh, Iran itself may have some, some field nuclear weapons at least. These are smaller ones, but they can wipe out Tel Aviv if fired at it. So uh, it's a very serious situation, Jimmy, and the Israelis are very much aware of this uh, threat. And, of course, the United States is watching it closely. Well, let me ask you that question. Should uh, the tensions continue to ratchet up between the United States and Iran, would that mean the prospect for an Iranian-Israeli escalation is there as well? Oh, it would definitely be a part of it, Jimmy. And uh, we, we have had that escalation, as we've been noting for the past really year. It was just about a year ago this summer, uh, June or July, I can't remember, I think July, when we first spotted Hezbollah forces massing along the Golan Heights, dressed as Syrian soldiers. Then came attacks on the Golan. We had several missile strikes. Uh, just this week, we had some anti-aircraft fire from Syria that could have landed in Israel. It was very close by. It didn't, but it was startling to the Israelis to see that. There's been all sorts of incidents and buildups, and in the Gaza Strip, the Navy announced the IDF. Navy announced that they had intercepted two boats loaded with missile weapon components sent by Iran to the Gaza Strip and uh, took that successfully. So, yes, they're building up continuously for war. We could talk all day about that, but I know you have other issues we want to talk about. But Syria continues to host a lot of Iranians. Yes, Israel would definitely be involved if there's any bust-up at all. David, I understand that Hamas has replenished their rocket supply, most likely with the help of the Iranians, and now they're reporting they have at least 10,000 rockets. That does not bode well for the southern part of Israel, does it? Well, certainly not, and, and not just the southern part, Jimmy. Again, they have already, uh, last year, they fired some rockets that reached the Jerusalem area, and of course, more recently, they've hit Tel Aviv, They've hit the port of Ashdod, or right near it. So these rockets can go, really, to most of the country. In fact, Hamas, one official a couple weeks ago, said, we can now hit the north. We can hit Haifa. Well, of course, their ally Hezbollah in the north has maybe 160,000 rockets, is what Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, quoted last year. So we just don't know. But 10,000, sure, we had 700 fired in that last barrage a few weeks ago. 
and the Iron Dome took out 85% of them, but still, homes were blown up, people were killed. Just think of 10,000, especially if they start doing these mass firings. That's what they were doing last time. Then the Iron Dome has a real hard time, you know, picking them out quickly and taking them out. They can only hit so many at a time. So there would be massive casualties from just a 1,000 rockets, and if it was five, it would be that much greater, and 10 would be horrendous. So we just don't know, Jimmy, but again, they're trying to smuggle more parts in. We know they still have tunnels from Egypt that they bring stuff in and other ways of getting those components, and experts from Iran have gone there and just taught them on scene how to use the components you have to make rockets that can be fired and possibly kill people. So it's a real threat indeed. I've uh, just been able to notice some of my reading and sources out of Israel indicate for the very first time Hamas in their Gaza Strip protest at the Israeli-Gaza Strip border have recently hung President Donald Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu in effigy. In other words, they want to execute both of these leaders. First time that Trump has been uh, one protested against by Hamas. Is that something different, an uptick in uh, pressure there? Well, Jimmy, the hatred for Donald Trump amongst pretty much all the Palestinians is palpable. It's uh, clearly displayed often. We've had uh, effigies of Netanyahu and Trump burnt uh, many times and Israeli flags stomped on and all this sort of thing. So it's not new, but it's real and it's deep. And, Jimmy, we had a, a display, I thought, from Hamas this week that was even more disgraceful than we usually get, and that is when the wife of the president passed away and uh, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority sent condolences to Prime Minister Netanyahu and to President Rivlin, whose wife it was, and Hamas condemned that, said, how dare you salute these blood-sucking Jews? I mean, they use some nasty languages they usually do, on the death of a woman in her 70s who was well-loved, and did a lot for the Arabs of Israel as well. She was known uh, for that and other things. So uh, just disgraceful, but Hamas remains Hamas, and they're true to their call. They want Israel destroyed. They want all Jews killed. They don't care, young, old, female, male, whatever. And who does that sound like? Well, a guy that was defeated 76 years ago, 74 years ago, I guess it was now, but 75 years ago, the troops landed in mass to do that. So uh, Nazism reigns again in the Gaza Strip, frankly, uh, but in a religious guise this time. But the hatred of the Jews uh, from the pit of hell still emanating very strongly from there. The fourth spring feast observed in Israel, Shavuot, which is the Feast of Pentecost, quite an interesting connection between the Jewish worshipers who celebrate and commemorate uh, this Feast of Pentecost, but uh, the Christian people celebrating as well. That was the beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2. High security, I would imagine. Oh, yes. It's always a time of high security, but it's always a time of great joy, and uh, a bunch of festivals are being planned. It's a very light, happy festival, unlike uh, Passover remembers, well, slavery and death and destruction, as well as liberation, of course, and absolutely that's the center of it, that God did intervene and save them. But Pentecost is just a command from the Lord to celebrate the fact that I'm giving you food, basically, that you're having a harvest. Of course, it was also the giving of the law. It was 
50 days, 49 days after Passover, and the exit from Egypt that Moses is believed to have gone up on the Holy Hill and gotten the Ten Commandments. So it's great, and of course, the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Church, which we have to remind our listeners, they were all Jews pretty much then. Uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem gathered together, waiting uh, as the Lord had told them to do, watching and waiting, and there the Holy Spirit came down in such a powerful way. So always a time of great rejoicing. I miss being there this year. I've been there many, many times for it, and the conferences are great, and speakers, and it's a time of really exalting the Lord. But every holiday is an opportunity to attack as well from Israel's enemies, so they're watching that side as well. That has to be a part of every commemoration and celebration in the state of Israel, high security. David, thank you for the report. We need this report to understand how God is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Appreciate you, my good friend. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy, and God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Wilder is going to talk about a very famous rabbi who captured the city of Hebron all by himself. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move into our second half hour. Now, we've asked for three half hours, 90 minutes, and if you will give us that time, we'll give you the broadcast partners around the world that will assist you in understanding current events in light of biblical prophecy. We're going to go to Hebron, which is the second most sacred city in all of the Jewish world. It's the original headquarters for the Jewish people located in the Promised Land. And it was about 4,000 years ago that Abraham came to live in Hebron. Later on, King David became the king there of Judea in Hebron, and ultimately he was king of all 12 tribes. Great history this city has, and one of our great dear friends is David Wilder. He works with the government there. He does tours. He takes a lot of pictures. He's a very interesting gentleman that has a multiplicity of responsibilities, a potpourri, may I say it that way better, of activities that he does. He knows Hebron, like the back of his hand, been living there for a number of years. And on the broadcast today, we've been focusing somewhat on Jerusalem Day, June 7, 1967, Uh, When the Israeli Defense Force captured the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, reuniting the city of Jerusalem 
for the first time in about 2,000 years. One of the stories that you have heard me tell is that when the Israeli Defense Force, under the leadership of Uzi Narkis, came off of the Mount of Olives, crossed the Kidron Valley, came into the old city there at the Lion Gate, they went up onto the Temple Mount, and they captured the city for the first time in 2,000 years, reuniting this capital for the Jewish nation of Israel. About that same time, there was a general who was the chief of the chaplains for the Israeli Defense Force, a man named Shlomo Gorin, who had also entered the Temple Mount area. He actually went into the Dome of the Rock, that gold dome building that you see there on the Jerusalem horizon. Had a couple of sticks of dynamite, was going to blow up that Dome of the Rock and start to build the next temple. Well, Uzi Narkis, a higher-ranking general, walked in to Shlomo Gorin and said, Sir, put those dynamite sticks down or I'll have to arrest you. Well, that was what could have been the beginning of the rebuilding of that third temple. But uh, another general in the Israeli Defense Force stopped that from happening. Meanwhile, we then see Shlomo Gorin, the general of the Israeli Defense Force, leave and head towards Hebron. Now, that's where we bring in our broadcast partner, David Wilder. Because, David, you can pick up the story from here. And the Israeli Defense Force was supposed to be going to Hebron uh, to capture this city, second most sacred piece of real estate, the site of the burial for the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They got mixed up somehow, and Shlomo Gorin actually went into Hebron by himself. Tell us the story of what happened. Well, Jimmy, what happened was he had been at the site at the Holy Western Wall when it was liberated. There were photographs of him blowing the shofar, the ram's horn there. And he knew that the next day the army was going into uh, Hebron. And he also knew that Jews had not been able to pray at the site of the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs in 700 years. The seventh century of that site was off limits. And knowing that the army was going to be going there, he wanted to go with them and be one of the first Jews to be able to actually worship there in seven centuries. So he, he left Jerusalem, he went to Bethlehem, he actually was able to open up Rachel's tomb, which was also a story in and of itself, and he kept going until he was uh, he reached an area about halfway between Jerusalem and Hebron. The, the distance between the two cities is about 30 kilometers, so he got 15 kilometers into an area called the Etzion Block, which had been part of pre-state Israel and had been destroyed during the War of Independence. That area had been liberated the same day as Jerusalem was liberated. He reached that site where all of the army was. He reached them in the middle of the night, and he gave them a little pep talk about how important it was going to Hebron. And then he said, uh, I'm going to go rest. When you leave for Hebron, come wake me up. I'm going with you. And he went to sleep. A few hours later, he wakes up, and there's nobody there, no soldiers, no jeeps, no nothing. So we woke up his driver, and he said, they left without us. They didn't want to take us. Let's catch up with them. So in the middle of the Six-Day War, this rabbi and his drivers driving by themselves south towards Hebron, uh, and they very, very quickly realized uh, that they weren't going to have to deal with any uh, real enemy fire. The Arabs were hanging white sheets outside the, the windows of their buildings, outside the windows of their homes. They were, they were surrendering. They surrendered because they recalled the 1929 massacre when they slaughtered 67 Jews in Hebron, and they were afraid that the Israeli army was going to pay them back. So they just surrendered. 
Rabbi Goren reaches the city of Hebron, uh, makes his way to the tomb of the patriarchs, runs up the stairs leading to the entrance of the building. And the doors were locked, and the people inside refused to open them. So he started shooting at the doors with his Uzi submachine gun. They didn't open them. The doors were made out of metal. So he, he took his Jeep up the stairs, and he put chains on the doors and hooked them onto the back of the Jeep, pulled the doors down, and he ran inside, and he started to pray. The Mufti of Hebron sent a messenger saying he wanted to come surrender, and Rabbi Cohen sent him away. He said, this is a place of prayer and peace. Go surrender someplace else, which he later did. Uh, Rabbi Goren then told told people afterwards why he really didn't accept the surrender. He said, I'm a general. I'm not going to give them the honor to surrender to a general. Let them surrender to a sergeant, which is also what they did. But, of course, when he left to go to Hebron, Rabbi Goren, uh, his goal was to catch up with the army. Uh, where were they in all of this? What he didn't realize is the place where they had been at, where he had gone to sleep, is actually a very big hill. And the Israeli army, not knowing that the Arabs in Hebron were going to surrender, were on the other side of the hill preparing the attack. What happened was that he went into the city with his driver all by himself. He liberated Hebron. He liberated the tomb of the patriarchs and the Jewish people. One person all by himself. It's an amazing story. I heard him tell that story the last time he was here before he passed away. Uh, It was uh, really part of the miraculous Six-Day War victory. I think the key word right there is miraculous Six-Day War and the victory for the Jewish people over the Arabs who were trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. What an exciting story. I met General Shlomo Gorin at the president's house one time, very short in stature, but a powerful man. I walked up and with his gruff voice, he said, what do you want, young man? And I had a opportunity to talk with him and reminisce about some of these stories of him there on the Temple Mount and in the city of Hebron. Hebron, a key sacred city for the Jewish people. It is the site for the burial of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David, that is a great story you related to us. I hope you have the opportunity to repeat that story over and over again. And it will be a blessing to anybody that hears it. By the way, would you not suggest when anybody who visits the nation of Israel has opportunity to go to different biblical sites, it would be good for them to visit there in Hebron, would it not? Oh, for sure. We get close to a million tourists here every year, a million people here every year. It's very popular, and there are a lot of very, very interesting sites to see here. The archaeological sites, the Tomb of the Patriarchs, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And anybody that's interested either in, the, in, in, in sacred sites or in archaeology or in history or in the Bible, uh, this is the place to come to see. It's all here. All here. And I've been there with David when I was doing television for Day of Discovery. David was our guide as we went to the original home site for Abraham and that avenue that walked up to Abraham's home. Had a great time there. David, thank you for relating that story about General Shlomo Gorin. Appreciate it so much. It fits into our focus on the broadcast today. Hope to talk to you again real soon, David. God bless you, my friend. God bless you and all your listeners. Shalom, shalom. Very interesting story related to us by David Wilders there in Hebron. How Rabbi Shlomo Gorin captured the city of Hebron back on the 8th day of June in 1967. They captured the Temple Mount on the 7th, the 8th day. Shlomo Gorin, the chief of chaplains, a general in the Israeli Defense Force, 
taking the city of Hebron, second most sacred city to the Jewish people. That's a great story. You might want to go back and re-listen to it or tell a friend. They can do that by going to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. They'll be able to hear that story from David Wilder once again. But you'll also, if you go to PTRN, be able to get the information that John Root is going to give us. He has a European Union update. This is a key region of our world, prophetically. It's the foundation for the revived Roman Empire. And the focus of the world, John, has been on Europe, in particular the area of D-Day 75 years ago. Talk to me just briefly about the transatlantic relationships that have been displayed during D-Day. The president meeting there with Macron of France, also Merkel making some statements. What do you know? Each time there's a anniversary for D-Day, you wonder how can the EU have an attitude that's not quite as friendly or supportive of the United States. So President Trump attended the commemoration ceremony. You know, the EU supports NATO when the U.S. is paying its share. The EU is critical of President Trump's approach to NATO. It consistently works for its own military, and it's more just a political army than any functioning army. Because remember, the EU needs a political center to have a true army. The EU is looking for a political center and at the expense of the United States paying, footing the bill for the majority of NATO. We need to look back and remember this day and have more up-to-date attitudes throughout Europe. Yeah, that would probably be a very good idea. Well, let me talk about the deal of the century Donald Trump has put together as President of the United States and Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. They are not going to be able, it seems like, to be able to present it as they wanted to. It's been postponed. However, uh, the son-in-law of the President Kushner into Brussels to try to brief the European Union on the peace plan. What do you know? Well, the Palestinian peace plan was to be a big surprise, and it's not totally unveiled. There are ideas that are going forth, but the groups are taking a very strong stance. The Palestinians were against the plan even before it was revealed. Of course, they've backed out with relationship from President Trump in the United States over Jerusalem being declared capital. There is an economic component to this plan, which is being revealed little by little, and it actually will be totally revealed in Bahrain at the end of the month. Palestinian delegation will not be there. And then the political aspect of the plan is really what's at the headline, because the EU is saying the United States must support both sides in the Middle East peace, and because the peace plan apparently will not have a status for a two-state Palestinian state solution, which has always been the stance from the European Union. So just an analysis, Jimmy, we see that they're simply putting it together. It's an interest of the EU. This is their way to say they're not on board, and it'll be very difficult, all the players involved, It looks like this is going to be a very difficult plan to gain traction, and so we can expect more of the status quo. Yeah, status quo probably 
what everybody is going to hold to as this plan is revealed more and more. But however, John, I'm not sure when they're going to present it because of uh, the upcoming Israeli elections, and then after that, Donald Trump has to start campaigning. We'll have to wait and see. Well, again, as we report the political on the European Union, we can see the prophetic very well coming into focus. Always a very important time to have a conversation with John Rood. John, thank you so much, my good friend. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. You too. Well, we're going back to the state of Israel right now, going up to the center part of the state to a place called Shiloh. It's the location where the former mayor there, Winky Madad, is on the line with us now. He's one of our favorite broadcast partners. And I'm going to bring Winky to the microphone this time because of the Jewish Holy Day Shuavot. This is the Feast of Pentecost. And this is one of the key feasts from the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Actually, it's the last of the spring feast, is it not, Winky? Yes, it's one of the three, what we call, pilgrimage festivals. That three times a year, according to the Bible, Jews, when the temple was existing, had to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year. There are other times they had to go to, but... We won't get into the details of that. It had to do with the growing of fruit or the taking of tithes and other elements. But we're talking about the holiday of Passover, in Hebrew, Pesach, which we discussed at the time, matzot, leavened, unleavened bread, and, and other issues. That's followed exactly 50 days later by the Shavuot, the Pentecostal holiday, and then after the summer is over and after the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the, the high holy days, the New Year and the Day of Atonement, we have the Sukkot festival, and then again, that is the third festival, of course, as you mentioned, two in the spring, basically, and one in the fall. Well, I know that the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, is in biblical times, the time when they bring the first harvest of the wheat into the temple itself. Uh, But were there other reasons, and I want to get into braining of the wheat harvest, but are there other reasons for the Jewish people having to go up to Jerusalem, make Aliyah, in other words, on these three pilgrim feasts? What was the main reason for bringing them to the temple? Well, according to the Torah, the first five books of Moses, a Jew is obliged to see God and be seen by God. That's the Hebrew translation of the commandment, to be seen and to see. And the rabbis interpret that as coming to the temple precincts so that you know where God resides in terms of the temple and what we call his, his holy presence. And it basically, if I can sort of philosophically create something here for you, Jimmy, number one, it's a unifying factor that Jerusalem is the center of Israel's spirituality with the temple, and all Jews are equal, because it doesn't matter if you're a king or a prince or a lowly slave, you are commanded to do so. And secondly is the fact that it creates a community. You know, today they talk about civics and civil society and what is citizenry and who are subjects, etc. like that, in the ancient Jewish uh, political sphere, 
you came because you had a religious obligation, because you honored, respected, and you felt that God's word was to be obeyed. And so you came three times a year. Uh, I, it's, we don't have enough time to go into everything, but just one small thing from the Talmud. It says, at what age is a young child obliged to accompany his father or parent to come to see the temple? And uh, interestingly, the other says, one version is if he could be properly carried on the shoulders of the father. Another one says he can actually walk up the steps of the Temple Mount. And Jimmy, I think you know that those steps discovered in the southern wall of the Temple Mount were one up and two on, one up and two on, to make it a little bit easier, in fact, for children to ascend and not making it too steep a uh, a climb. Boy, that was some very practical advice as far as the Jewish people are concerned. But I think it has some great principles that we Christians should pay attention to as well. Now, we have already mentioned in biblical times the first of the wheat harvest to be brought up. That's more or less showing the Lord that uh, the Jewish people really love him and put all that he gives them first to return back to him. Is that basically it? Yes, Jimmy, I think we've discussed many times on this program the centrality of the agricultural reality of the land of Israel as part of Jewish national culture. Tithes, first fruits, blessings to be said on different types of things grown from the land. Uh, Again, it's it's too detailed for this program anyway, but uh, I must stress that anybody who wants to go through the Bible and look for references to agriculture, to growing from uh, laws about trees. Can you cut down trees when you're besieging a city? The Bible relates to that also. There are many aspects that show that the natural life of the Jews 2,000 years ago or more was an agricultural-based society, which explains a lot about how laws are made and how we have love, respect, and honor and devotion, Jimmy, to the land of Israel. It's not just something abstract that you pick up and throw away a stone here or soil there, but it's treated with respect and even sanctity. I want to make one more point, Jimmy, which we haven't yet touched. It's traditionally thought that the day of Shavuot is also, even though it's not quite recorded in the Bible, Uh, the day when the Torah was given to the people of Israel in the desert from off of Mount Sinai. You know, not only are you a great teacher, and this is a great teaching session for we Christians that uh, basically listen to this broadcast all across the nation and around the world on the Internet, but I think you must be a prophet because that was my next question. And in fact, uh, you commemorate the time of the giving of the Torah here at the time of Pentecost, don't you? Yes, we do. Uh, Again, as I said, the exact date, unlike Passover, unlike uh, Shavuot itself, which is the 50th day after the the next day of Passover, or the various other holidays, the exact date of the giving of the Torah is actually an argument among our sages. And in the end, they said it's the Shavuot holiday, on the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan, and uh, that's what we accept. And of course, connecting the giving of the Torah, the creating of a body of, or a community of people, 
based around ethics, morals, and religious rituals and laws, I think was very unique in ancient times, and I think it's still unique today, uh, which means that some of these progressives who claim that we Jews are white, if I can skip into current affairs, when you know yourself that we have about 50 shades of color here mm-hmm. in Israel, from right. Jews all over the world, from Yemenite, Ethiopia, northern, northern Europe, South America, what unites us is a belief system and a religion and a, the- a theology not specifically racism or a superior or supremacist nationality. Winky, am I correct in understanding that traditionally Jews engage in all-night prayer and study of the Torah on the, this particular holy day? For the past five, six hundred years or so, a little bit more in fact, it has become the practice, especially among the Kabbalists, uh, and that's a topic for another show, those who believe in a sort of internal message in the Torah, which is transferred or passed on from generation to generation. That's where the word Kabbalah comes from originally. But the book of the Zohar and other books, the practice has been to stay up all night, which I used to do, Jimmy, when I was younger, but it gets (laughs) tougher when you get older. Uh, But the children here and some of the men come home from synagogue, quickly eat, and about two or three hours later, will show up usually in the synagogue or the learning halls. Here in Shiloh, we have programs going on from about 11 o'clock to 3 in the morning. Some rabbis, though, have said, if you think that you're going to fall asleep in morning services, it's better to take some hours off and go to sleep so you can say your prayers with greater loquation and pronunciation so that you don't uh, harm the proper saying of the prayers in the morning. I also understand that uh, in the synagogue, you were mentioning being at the synagogue, you read through the Book of Ruth. Why the Book of Ruth? Uh, each of the three main pilgrimage festivals, Jimmy, has a special book to be said. The holiday of Simchat Torah, the rejoicing of the Torah, the book actually is, I think it's pronounced in English, Ecclesiastes. Well, I'm not going to pronounce it in English. You know it better, Jimmy. Kohelet. And the book for Passover is the Song of Songs, which is interpreted as a a love song between God and the people of Israel. And as you mentioned, the book of Ruth is read on the Shavuot. First of all, because anybody who knows the book of Ruth, harvesting the field and the wheat and the sheaves and the granary uh, incident that takes place between Boaz and Ruth, it's quite central to the story of Ruth. But then the rabbi said it's also an important story because it welcomes converts. It's a story that people can join the Jewish people. We are not racist or racial. All you need is good faith in your heart and belief, and you can join the Jewish people. And I think that says that, in other words, the Torah, the giving of the Torah, which is celebrating Shavuot, is for all people, not just for Jews. I know that you said you might not stay up all night as you get older, and I can understand that very effectively in my own particular life. But what about the fact of the custom of really enjoying a lot of dairy, the food that is consumed during this special holy day? You're into that, are you not? Well, Jimmy, we're going to go into kosher Jewish cuisine. Uh, We're going to talk about blintzes, 
which I think are uh, a, a filled crepes, if I can maybe make that distinction. Cheeses, milk, butter, all these are connected with what happened at Mount Sinai when the uh, legend is that Jews were preferred to eat milk products rather than meat at that time, and that's the tradition. It's a nice tradition that passes on so that there are a lot of dairy-based elements in the cuisine, in the food list that you eat over Shavuot. Well, I hope that you enjoy your dairy cuisine, as you referred to it. I wish I was there to enjoy some of it with you at this particular time of Pentecost. I've got to thank you so much. What a great teaching opportunity you've had, Winky, for us as Christians to get more in-depth about Feast of Pentecost. Of course, we understand on the day of Pentecost, the church actually began, but that is another program for another time as well. But thank you so very much for teaching us today about the Jewish customs. Appreciate it. We'll have another conversation real soon. Well, Jimmy, if I recall properly, the major scene was in the temple precincts at that time, and then again, it relates to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, which is one topic we've discussed many times. In any case, thank you very much for having me on the program, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Always a real joy for me to have a conversation with Winky Madad. Great conversation with Winky. Well, we're going to take a break right now. We have one more broadcast partner, David James, to talk to me about a pastor in Northern Virginia who prayed over President Trump and was blasted from all sides. You do not want to miss that conversation. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move into our last half hour. I have one more broadcast partner. David James is standing by. We'll be talking to him in just a moment. want to invite you to answer my poll question. It's on my website, prophecytoday.com. If you'll go there and scroll down on the left-hand column, you'll find the poll question. Here it is, with the observance of the 75th anniversary of D-Day and the daily reports of wars and rumors of wars in the Middle East and in Africa, by the way, do you believe that we are quickly approaching the time which Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, when he said a major sign of the end times would be wars and rumors of wars? That's Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. Please, if you will, go answer that poll question, and it's on my website at prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a weekly conversation where we look at an issue that should be considered biblically by the body of Christ, the church, the Christian We need to know what the principles of God's Word are in issues that we discuss, and I hope and pray that this is a great help to you as a Christian as well. This time we're going to be talking about President Trump's brief visit to a church there in the Washington, D.C. area, and then the beginning of the 2020 campaign season. 
Everybody's talking about who's going to be the next president. Well, we want to talk about this subject as well. David, this past weekend, President Trump made an unexpected visit to David Platt's church there in the the area of Washington, D.C., McLean Bible Church, in the aftermath of the Virginia Beach shooting. And as could be predicted, controversy erupted. That's exactly right. And as I'm sure our listeners know, on uh, May 31st, that would have been Friday of last week, a disgruntled employee opened fire in a municipal building in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and killed 11 government employees and an outside contractor. And Virginia Beach is located about 150 miles southeast of Washington, D.C. So on Sunday, President Trump visited McLean Bible Church, as you noted the name of the church, and it was after a round of golf, and it was to pray for the victim's family and colleagues of the shooting victims. And so uh, McLean Bible Church is a megachurch with several locations in the D.C. area where David Platt is a senior pastor. Pastor Platt has had a high-profile ministry for a number of years and was elected as president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2014, and he served in that capacity until 2018. But as you noted, like clockwork, the president's critics took him to task for visiting this evangelical church and be involved with prayer, and then the pastor, David Platt, took him to task for praying for the president, and I would say uh, you could characterize it, it's all manufactured outrage centered around what they say is a mixing of religion and politics, which it really isn't at all. Yeah, and in reality, it seems that there was also some misreporting by the media as to exactly what did happen afterward as uh, Pastor Platt took some heat for even praying for the president, and unfortunately, this has become predictable as well. That's right. As the story developed, uh, the conservative outlet Breitbart reported that Politico, an outlet that wouldn't be necessarily considered conservative, they reported that Politico had claimed on Monday that David Platt had apologized to his congregation for the decision to pray for President Trump, but that's not really what happened. What did happen is that he posted a statement on the church's website, and we don't have time to read the whole thing, but I will note a couple of things he said. He wrote... Based on this text, meaning 1 Timothy chapter 2, I know that it's good and pleasing in the sight of God to pray for the president. So in that moment, I decided to take this unique opportunity for us as a church to pray over him, meaning the president, together. And my aim was in no way to endorse the president, his policies, or his party, but to rather obey God's command to pray for our president and others who lead and to govern in the way that this passage portrays. Then later on, in that letter on the website, Pastor Platt acknowledged that some congregants were hurt that he had prayed for the president and then asked them to pray with me for the gospel seed that was sown today to bear fruit in the president's heart. So it wasn't an apology at all, just an acknowledgement that not everyone in this congregation would necessarily agree with the president's politics or support him as a person. And interestingly, one person in the congregation wrote the following on Facebook. The person said, Pastor, I cannot stand Trump, but your example yesterday was convicting and inspiring. I am repentant for my thoughts and words towards the president and recognize that God loves Trump just as he loves me. Wow, 
that's very interesting email from that anti-Trump individual. Well, you know, all politics aside, we are completely biblical for the opportunity when we can take it as believers to both submit to those in higher authority and actually to pray for them. You're exactly right. You know, we've talked about this many times on this program over the years. Romans 13 tells us that we should submit to those in authority and government, and this would be true, I would say, in everything except where the laws of government come into direct conflict with the moral law of God. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. That's pretty powerful. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in the first few verses, we read this, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I would say that David Platt was simply fulfilling his role as a shepherd of a local fellowship of believers in obeying the Word of God and setting an example, even for those that you may not agree with who are in positions of authority and leadership. Well, I want to tell you something, David. That verse is key in my life because every single day I lift up the president, the vice president, other members of the cabinet in the Trump administration, and I pray for them because of the exhortation from the Apostle Paul there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Apparently, I understand that President Trump is getting ready to announce his re-election sometime, possibly next week. So I would like for us to switch gears a bit to the 2020 elections. Not that we're wanting to get into politics, we're not. But because of our concerns always related to where the various candidates stand on moral and social issues. That's true. And for our listeners who have been following us for some time, this is exactly what we did uh, with the 2016 presidential election. You know, I suppose it can be tricky to try to not cross the line into getting into the middle of the political fray. But I also think we have a responsibility as believers to be informed because we have the privilege in this country of being a part of the political process. So along this line, I think it's also important to keep in mind that when we go to the ballot box, while we obviously are voting for individuals, as much as anything, we're voting for a party platform, and those who hold political office are generally expected to function within the parameters of that party platform and the very planks that are in that platform. So just for an example, to be honest, For me personally, if it comes to supporting one party that has killing unborn babies as part of its official position, or a party that at least to a much greater degree stands for the sanctity of life, for me it's basically a no-brainer. And so we're just trying to bring some clarity about where the various candidates are on these very important issues that are especially important uh, within the body of Christ. Well, I agree with you, David. That number one issue, as far as I'm concerned, for any election, no matter who the candidate or what office it may be, is where do they stand on abortion? 
You know, the week after President Trump announces his 2020 campaign, the Democrats are going to begin their first debates with some 21 candidates having presently qualified to be on the stage there in Miami. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, the first uh, Democratic primary debate will take place on June 26th and 27th in Miami with lineups for each night chosen at random. There will be a total of 12 debates during the Democrat primary season, and the June debate will be the first of six scheduled for this year. Now, the second debate will be hosted by CNN in Detroit at the end of July. And the uh, the DNC has announced that candidates have two paths to qualify uh, to, for these first and second debates. One is to register 1% or more support in three polls, and another is to have uh, at least 65,000 unique donors or a minimum of 200 unique donors per state in at least 20 states. And so, as you noted, there are t- currently 21 candidates who qualify, and only 20 of them will be selected to be on that stage. And I would also note that currently the top five Democrat candidates would be Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg. And honestly, there's reason for concern that all 21 declared candidates uh, are going to be moving to the left when it comes to moral and social issues. David, you sent me a link to a website that has a great series of graphics that show where the candidates stand on major issues. Maybe you could share with our listeners how to easily find that page, as well as some of the major issues cited in the article that we're going to be watching going forward because of their potential impact on Christians in this country. Well, the article has a very long link, but so I would suggest just going to Google or whatever your search engine is and put in Politico, that's the name of the website, and then type in where the Democratic candidates stand, and that will probably be one of the first hits that pop up. And it shows you at a glance where they stand for or against on particular issues. So some of the issues with regard to a hard left turn towards socialism, which should be a concern, I think, for believers as well, because in the last century, including this century, socialism has not been kind to believers around the world. So you have universal health care, taxing the rich, and free college tuition, and we can debate those as believers. But then you get into other issues like Supreme Court expansion, uh, legalizing marijuana, abolishing the electoral college, and late-term abortion. So those th- four things could dramatically change the political, cultural, moral, and social landscape of our country on our really key issues. David, I've got a suggestion. If you will, text Jody there at the, the Prophecy Today office uh, that link to that particular website And we'll put it out over Facebook and Twitter so the people can get it from either my Twitter page or my uh, Facebook page. That would be a great way to get that link out. Well, as we wrap it up today, I thought it would be good to deal with the question of whether it is possible to legislate morality. You hear that all the time. And why this issue is important as we think about the role of believers in the political process here in the United States. Right. Well, 
Actually, I've made this statement many times in different contexts to say that you can't legislate morality, but I had a friend challenge me on that not too long ago, someone who's actually does a lot of biblical counseling and uh, actually my first boss in the ministry 30-some years ago, and he said the fact is we legislate morality all the time, and let me explain what I mean by that. Legislators define what they consider to be moral and ethical, and then they pass laws in accordance with those beliefs, and then we vote for legislators based on their records and their campaign promises. Now, when we talk about legislating morality, we're not talking about changing people's hearts. Only the gospel can do that. And so this doesn't have the effect of creating a positive moral environment necessarily, but it does have the effect of restraining evil, depending on what is determined to be illegal and what the punishments are for committing these crimes. So as citizens in a country that has an opportunity to vote, it's an opportunity for us to shape the direction that our country is going. Wow, that's that's a great thought. Hey, thanks for the research. Thanks for the idea of us putting this together. It's an issue that the body of Christ needed to understand, have a biblical understanding of, especially. And as we pray for those in higher authority, we must get ready to vote in that's upcoming. Well, it seems like tomorrow, but it's not quite that close. We'll be ready when it does happen. Thank you, David. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks, Jimmy. I look forward to it. We're going to take a break, and when I come back, we're going to open the Bible. See, everything we do is focused on God's Word. We're going to open the Bible, and we'll take a look at the book as it relates to all the reports from our broadcast partners. That's right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. 
All of my broadcast partners have reported in, and I mean reported in from across the world. How about the fact that Ken Timmerman was there at the D-Day ceremonies, and that was a very exciting report that Ken gave us. But we're in Israel. We're all across this world contacting our broadcast partners so they can give us information that will help us understand how these current events are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This is one of the services here at Prophecy Today. We cover current events in light of biblical prophecy. By the way, if you would like to listen to any of the broadcast partners, maybe you missed one, you had to be called away from the radio during the broadcast, or you would like to re-listen to one and maybe send it along to a friend so they can hear the story, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There we've archived all of the interviews I did with my broadcast partners on the program today. And as I said, be sure to tell a friend. In fact, send them a link so that they can listen to all of these reports. Well, today on Prophecy Today Weekend, our broadcast partners had these reports. Ken Timmerman, as I mentioned, went down to the D-Day ceremonies there at Normandy, and he talked about what took place there, how moving, how exciting, how a precious historic event was commemorated, 75th anniversary of that invasion there at Normandy. You know, as I was thinking about that, been listening the last couple of days and watching television reports from that part of the world, all I could think about is the Olivet Discourse and what Jesus Christ had to say in that week of his passion. In other words, when he would be crucified in a couple of days, he would die, be buried, and resurrect from the dead. But he started that week by giving a prophetic message. It was the greatest prophecy conference that's ever been held, and Jesus was the teacher. Do you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7? He said, one of the indicators, the signs of his second coming. Now, I'm not talking about the rapture of the church. You have the rapture, then there's a seven-year period of time called the tribulation, and then you have the return of Christ. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, was talking about his return to the earth. And what he said in Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7, is that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for the end is not yet. For kingdom shall rise against kingdom, and nation against nation, people against people. Well, the D-Day ceremonies there at Normandy reminded us of the greatest battle that we could ever have had happen with the United States participating. The European nations that joined with America were helping to supposedly shut out all wars in the future. Now, we know that has not been the case. In fact, when we look today at the continent of Africa and throughout the entire Middle East, All we hear about is wars and rumors of wars. We're living in the time of the return of Christ, but remember the rapture is seven years before that. 
David Dolan gave us a report about Iran and their development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. The former director general of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has reported that Iran has been working. I thought that they had this Iranian deal that President Obama worked out. It was not only with the United States because President Trump pulled us out of that Iranian nuclear deal, but the European Union nations were still connected with Iran on this particular deal. However, it seems now they have been breaking the deal by preparing a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. They'll have one ready in six months. What about the deal? I don't know what happened there. Yes, we do. We know exactly what they were going to do. They were liars from the beginning, but they're not lying about the fact that they will use that nuclear weapon when they have it prepared to put on a Shahab 3 missile and fire at any target in Israel to wipe the Jewish nation of Israel off the face of the earth. That's Ezekiel chapter 38. David Wilder told us a great story from the history of Hebron. We went back to the Six-Day War. Now, on June 7th, that was the day that the Israeli Defense Force paratroopers recaptured the Temple Mount after a 2,000-year period of time and reunited the city of Jerusalem. Now, that was the 7th. The next day, the rabbi who went into the Dome of the Rock to blow it up was told to get out, and instead of going in the Dome of the Rock, he went over to the city of Hebron, and the next day, Hebron, by the way, the second most sacred city for the Jewish people, he walked in and captured the city. They surrendered to him by himself. He captured the city as a rabbi in the Israeli Defense Force. What a story. If you did not hear it, you need to go and listen to it. Winky Madad talked to us about the day of Pentecost. That's the feast Shavuot in Hebrew, and it's the last of the four spring feasts. And it was great to have Winky's teaching, teaching from the Jewish perspective about this special time in history. By the way, there is a connection to Christians as well. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, Jews from every nation of the world were gathered at Jerusalem. And that was the day of the beginning of the church as Peter spoke and over 3,000 came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what about David James and the conversation we had together? Pastor David Platt prayed over President Trump, and he was blasted from all sides. All he was doing was what the Word of God has to say. That's First Timothy chapter 2. Pray for those, first of all, before the pastor, before the missionary, before the evangelist. Pray for those in higher authority. I don't know why the man was blasted. However, we do know this, that everything that my broadcast partners brought to the table this time gave us indication that the next event on God's calendar of activities, the rapture of the church, is about to happen. In fact, I can only tell you this, that rapture could happen today. And having said that, there is nothing else that I could say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today.